Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Live from Radio Catskills Studios in Liberty, New York, it's local edition. News and information keeping you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Coming up, we're going to meet the newly elected supervisor for the town of Highland, John Pizzolatto. A lot of town politics going on there that uh, complete the story that we were hearing a lot locally during Election Day and following Election Day. People want to get past politics and get to local governance. That's coming up in the second half of the show. But first, uh, this is where we start off on a Thursday. We connect with the Times Union's Hudson Valley Bureau. For that, we turn to managing editor Philip Pantuso joining us live on the phone. Philip, thank you so much for being here with us. It's always good to be with you. So um, let's start off. Uh, law enforcement searched two properties in Orange County, which have been found to be related to uh, the Gambino crime family investigation, or at least that's why they're being uh, searched. So what what did they find and how do we even know about this? <laughs> well, we know about it because it started to break initially on social media um, there was a big law enforcement presence, FBI and NYPD, on two farms. Um, one is in Campbell Hall, which is a hamlet in the town of Hamptonburg, and one was in the town of Goshen. They're about five minutes apart from each other. And on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, um, a bunch of law enforcement officials with shovels and other kind of heavy machinery, digging equipment were there. So then, you know, a bunch of people kind of got on the story. I've been reporting it all like kind of starting last night and this morning um, and was able to confirm with the FBI office in New York that is that the whatever they're doing there is related to uh, an ongoing investigation into the Gambino crime family that uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York is currently conducting. Yeah, it's interesting because you often hear from law enforcement that they don't want to talk about ongoing investigations. Maybe they didn't share many details with you, but they at least gave you that confirmation, which makes me wonder, like, like, uh, you know, why why are they communicating that? I think, I mean, I've been banging my head all day against the wall trying to get more details from from law enforcement sources. Um, I think they're sharing information here because. This was not like a covert operation. They couldn't really hide this. Um, you know, NBC4 down in the city and a couple of other t- television stations in the lower Hudson Valley and in New York City were all around the property. Um, there were copters above uh, yesterday. So they couldn't really, like, deny that this was there, particularly given that uh, there are people there uh, with, the, with the FBI field jackets on. Um, and it didn't take too long to find that the owners of these farms share uh, a last name, DiLorenzo, with um, a gentleman who was charged in a pretty wide-ranging racketeer- racketeering case that was unsealed in federal court last week. This is part of the investigation I mentioned into the U.S. Attorney's Office. This, this racketeering charge 
names 10 individuals. These are alleged like co-conspirators, people involved with the Gambino crime syndicate, kind of famous, you know, mafia family, um, ranging from, uh, from people who are captains in, in the family to, um, to soldiers, to people like lower down the chain. Um, and so I, I think reporters were starting to make that connection and, and the FBI w- was confirming that that was what, that's what this investigation was related to, but they wouldn't share anything about what they were searching for um, or what brought them to those farms specifically uh, or even what they found. Um, there's been some other reporting that I haven't been able to confirm that they were, that a tipster said that, you know, there might be something buried out there worth digging up. Um, it doesn't really seem like they found anything, but haven't actually been able to confirm that yet. All right. Well, you know, uh, at least in popular media and in local history and lore, there is this kind of longstanding connotation of uh, between uh, kind of crime families and heading upstate uh, for one reason or another. And that goes back, you know, even to the 20s and 30s up here in Sullivan County anyway. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, yeah. You say that, and and I'll just mention that, you know, they're there with shovels and backhoes and excavators, uh, and this came a week after this indictment was unsealed, so, you know, listeners can put two and two together. All right. Well, we'll we'll see what ends up actually happening in the courts and what's proved because uh, it's an ongoing investigation. But from uh, possible crime family uh, connections in Orange County uh, to a Sullivan County connection to um, a, an arrest in Washington, D.C. Did the arrest happen in Washington, D.C. or just the alleged crime? Uh, the, uh, the crime and the arrest happened in D.C. So last night there was... Um, a big protest outside the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington um, related to the Israel-Hamas war. Um, this, this, this rally was basically trying to get Democratic officials to, more Democratic officials anyway, to, to call for a ceasefire um, and to take other steps to try to end U.S. entanglement in Israeli politics, which are fueling the conflict over there. Um, as has been kind of widely reported, that, that conflict turned pretty, or that, that rally, I should say, turned, um, turned pretty chaotic. Um, there, were, there were some fights that broke out. Um, I think police had some trouble getting it under control. And reportedly, a man from the village of Woodbridge in Sullivan County um, slammed a police officer into a garage door and then punched her in the face. Uh, those actions got him a felony assault charge, um, which, uh, which came out, uh, which came down today. So, um, it, it, was, it was unclear at the time if he's being represented with a lawyer. I don't, I don't think he's actually, um, been arraigned or anything yet. So that's really all there is to share on this right now, but and it's this, kind of troubling this, info. This just happened last night? Uh, yeah, last night. Wow. All right. So this is breaking news. So understandably, uh, there's only so much we can know about it. Um, in other Catskills news, Wyndham Mountain, that's a that's a big ski resort, uh, is uh, essentially uh, rebranding as rebranded as the Wyndham Mountain Club. Uh, what's this about and how are folks reacting to it? <laughs> yeah, um, 
What it's about is that Wyndham Mountain is uh, kind of unveiled this this upscale rebranding um, recently. Um, they're called the Wyndham Mountain Club. I think the kind of takeaway here is that they're now offering a $175,000 lifetime membership, um, which will include an, an access to all kinds of luxury amenities, such as a private golf course, a spa, a river outpost with kayaking, though most of those have yet to be built. Um, you know, Wyndham, uh, Wyndham is kind of, uh, has gone undergone some changes recently. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's trying to be more exclusive. It, te- it says because it's trying to limit some of the impacts to the resort. You know, it's, it's, it's quite a popular resort. Um, to answer the second part of your question, how is this being met um, with a lot of vitriol, <laughs> especially online? Um, there was uh, there were so many negative comments on Wyndham's uh, Instagram post that announced this campaign that they eventually had to turn off commenting on most of their posts. Um, they've also blocked some of their most vocal critics one of whom um, talked to Roger Hennig and Gilson, who wrote the story for us. Um, and a, a spokesperson for the resort admitted that they, uh, that uh, there were some problems maybe with how they rolled out this rebrand, but uh, she, she stressed to Roger that the core values of Wyndham have not changed. Um, I don't know. I mean, they are changing a lot of things here. Like they're going to cap the number of skiers. Um, they're going to make it so that you can, you, you can't buy one day lift passes on Saturdays. You don't have to buy two day passes, like the, essentially weekend passes. Um, and they're also taking away uh, other kind of amenities on the resort, including mountain biking trails. Wow, you know, and all this is happening. You know, when I hear about news resort of uh, snow ski resorts in the news, uh, one of the first things I think of is just the the struggles that uh, a lot of them were facing in recent winters because of a lack of snow. And that doesn't seem to be what this story is about, but that'll be interesting to see because even just earlier this month, NOAA. Uh, National uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released uh, snowfall maps specifically because it's an El Nino year and it's forecasting that New York State's going to see less than uh, average snowfall. Of course, nobody will know for sure until it happens, but that's what we're seeing. I mean, they, they could be implementing these changes and reducing the number of skiers and there there could be a warmer than usual winter. Yeah, you know, I think I, that's really good context to bring to this discussion because I I think that there's a way to understand what they're doing here as maybe trying to diversify a little bit. Um, you know, certainly I would imagine that this is going to bring less, fewer skiers to the mountain any given year. I mean, they're going to have a lower cap. Um, but part of what they're trying to do, I think, is expand some of their other offerings, including some of the lodging they're building up there. They're, they're launching two new restaurants. They got big investment uh, last spring from two hospitality and resort development groups. Uh, there's all the other amenities I mentioned that are forthcoming, like, you know, the private golf course, the river kayaking. Um, and what, what, Wyndham, what the Wyndham, Wyndham spokesperson told Roger is that 
you know, the reason they're doing away with the one-day passes on Saturdays is they want to encourage people to spend more time in the surrounding town of Wyndham. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a part of it, but certainly it, this seems to maybe be an effort to try to change it to a kind of, you know, more all-inclusive luxury resort that has skiing rather than just a ski resort. Yeah, and not rely uh, so much on getting, um, you know, the business model of having people come up in bulk and focusing uh, on the audience more that way. Uh, it, that, it'll be interesting to see how uh, various resorts deal with these uh, climactic changes that are going on all around us. Um, For sure. And then finally, uh, to make sure I've got the right thing here, uh, our last story here, the U.S. Coast Guard withdrew a regulatory change allowing barges to anchor on the Hudson River north of the Governor Mariam Cuomo Bridge. I think that's a former um, – uh, that's that's a bridge going down to Westchester County, right? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's a former Tappan Zee. Tappan Zee Bridge is what I was trying to say. Thank you. So uh, what what's what exactly is this change and, and what does it mean? And uh, what's the reaction from folks on this? Yeah, so um, tiny bit of background necessary here. So in July, the U.S. Coast Guard redefined what the boundaries of the Port of New York were. Previously, for Coast Guard purposes, the Port of New York extended from the Statue of Liberty all the way up to Troy, but they redefined it to only being 25 miles north of New York City, which is roughly where the Cuomo, you know, slash Tappan Zee Bridge is. That basically changed the re- changed a few regulations that apply to just the Port of New York, but not the rest of the river, including where large ships or barges could anchor. This kind of went without notice at first. Um, but uh, I'm not sure who noticed it at first, but but it got a lot of attention last week when Congressman Pat Ryan started publicizing it. Um, and this is a rare kind of issue in which Republicans and, and Democrats seem to agree. Um, county executives and town leaders uh, up and down the Hudson River in communities that would have been affected, like Kingston, Newburgh, Red Hook, um, where or, or Hyde Park, sorry, where barges could have anchored, pushed against this, the Coast Guard reversed course earlier this week. And then actually just today, Ryan and Congressman Mark Molinaro introduced a bill that would clarify the federal law about whether or not the Coast Guard can make this kind of change kind of unilaterally like it did previously. So um, it, it does seem like this, this, these barges in the Hudson are, are not coming anytime soon, whether or not this bill gets passed will rely on Congress uh, working, which is, uh, you know, not exactly a safe bet. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And, and is there anything else on that? No, that's, that's pretty much it. The, the, the bill introduced today by Ryan and Molinaro is the, is the newest thing there. It would, uh, it would basically codify that the port of New York extends from the Statue of Liberty up to Troy. Um, and it would ban any additional anchoring spots along the Hudson River. And there's that's you touch on like the possible environmental impacts and reaction. Is is there any kind of economic uh, uh, benefit to this? The Coast Guard, um, the the Coast Guard didn't really make too much of an economic um, argument, um, at least at least to us. Um, you know. The 
you know, it seems like it would be a pretty limited change. Uh, this is basically, uh, you know, I think they wanted to do this in order to have barges be able to wait in the Hudson River before entering the ports of Albany or Queemans, uh, particularly as those ports are seeing some offshore wind development um, be constructed. So what economic benefit there might have been would have been short term. They weren't exactly saying that this is, you know, a precursor to bringing back large scale shipping to the Hudson or anything like that. It was more just seemed, it seemed like a sort of convenience for business's sake. Mm. And it really angered a lot of environmentalists and uh, the communities that draw their drinking water from the Hudson. All right. Well, Philip, I thank you so much for going over all of this uh, with us and uh, remind people that uh, Times Union's online and that's where they can uh, find these stories. Thank you so much. TimesUnion.com. Thanks. Okay, we're going to move right along now. Uh, John Pizzolatto is a newly elected town supervisor for the town of Highland. Patricia Rabio got to speak to him recently. You ran uh, for supervisor not too long ago in 2021. You lost only by um, 20 votes from what I read in the River Reporter. So what was different this time around? I think it builds on itself, right? We ran a, a pretty great introductory campaign in 2021, and I, I never stopped. For a moment, I contemplated, I think, after the election in 2022, I was like, maybe I'll just mind my own business, build up my own private business, and and do what I can from the other side of the table. But when I saw our, the sort of unraveling of our town leadership, I, I knew that I had like gained the skills in the last election to steer it back to the right direction. I felt like I really heard the voice of the people when I was going door to door. And once you open that box, it's hard to, to close it again and to get people to stop communicating like their hopes and their fears and their dreams and their wishes for the town. So I, I felt like it was like a, almost like a civic responsibility. And I feel like in some sense, the town board handed us our victory in a, in a big way. They did several things that really went against the taxpayers' wishes. They eliminated our constable program. They started a, an ambulance service haphazardly and very rapidly to replace something that, that was very popular with the American Legion. They continued to shut out the dialogue that I feel should exist between taxpayers and the local government. And in effect, I think this election was a referendum on that. So it's close to the constable program because I know that's a big issue there in the town. So exactly what happened? The town got rid of the program there and now the sheriff is, is back in, like in place to do the, you know, policing. So basically what happened was the town took issue with one of the constables and was trying to backtrack and fix the lack of process that they had in place there. They wanted to reprimand one of the constables for behavior. That, to some regard, had to do with a little bit of the 2021 election. The said constable was very much in support of a new regime coming in. And after the election in 2021, I think he was very outspoken about what he thought the direction of the town was. And so it was a little bit of a reprimanding of voicing his opinion to to not be lockstep with the town board. They wanted to reprimand him for past indiscretions or reported indiscretions. And instead of redefining their process and in coming up with a way to write this person up or to have a record of offenses or strike one, two, three, none of those things were in place. And so they just chose to eliminate the entire program, which was, which was really unpopular. A local constable program in a small town like Highland works really well because the constables not only work here, but they lived here. 
they knew whose car was supposed to be in whose driveway, whose kids were supposed to be at whose house. And you can't beat that. That's one of the great benefits of living in a small town. And so to hastily eliminate that and replace it with this anonymous policing, as it were, doesn't really sing to the community. And it didn't really, it wasn't done with the community's input. And I think that was like the fatal flaw is that there was no town summit of like, how do you feel if we move in the direction of working with the sheriff's department for patrolling versus the constable program? And they eliminated jobs for local people. And I think that's also something that we really need to work on and focus on is building up residents within the community to work and and to lead in the community. The constables are just one instance, but we use outsourced programs for our um, code enforcement and for our building inspection. Those could be local jobs. Once you turn away from taxpayers and the people who are funding all these programs, I think you lose. It seems as division for the town. So we could talk about that more. I know you talked about it in during your election campaign, but talk about your vision for the town of Highland going forward. Yeah, I think it's like a it's a collage, right, of all the people that I've spoken to. The thing that I learned, especially the first time, is there's no national political story that's present in the town of Highland. There's no Democrat. There's no Republican. There's nothing that like really, truly defines us or aligns us with the with this national rhetoric. And I think that we should learn from that national rhetoric that it, it's not working when you just oppose people by label and title only, you're going to eliminate so many people from the conversation and from participating in the dialogue, which I think is really important. I think that also our Democratic committee chair aligned new leadership back in 2019. She really brought myself and younger people into the fold and brought us into the dialogue of what do we want our town to look like in the future? And I think that her sort of including new people in the dialogue really opened up a place for new leadership. It was the sort of like lockstep oh, nobody wants these jobs, so we're going to fill them kind of mentality, when really it wasn't that nobody wanted the jobs, it's we didn't know how to get involved because it was such a closed door. And I think that the people of our town are smart, and and I don't think that I, for one, don't want to be in my position for more than a couple terms because I think there's so many smart people in town. And I think that it should be a changing of the guard frequently so that once I can hopefully reset things and and find out where we can do better and where we can save money, and where we can build up programs that are popular again, I'd love to pass it on and and get a different perspective. And I think that's one of the most important things about leadership is keeping folks around you that don't necessarily 100% lockstep agree with you, because somewhere in the middle is where the sort of popular opinion comes out and the remedy and a thoughtful kind of collaboration versus like this autonomous dictatorship that I feel like a lot of people were feeling from our town board. Yeah, that's one thing I, I got from this past election, because even you speaking to like the head of the Republican Party for Sullivan County, it's, it really was folks was tired of what's happening nationally and didn't want it to infiltrate what's happening locally. Yeah. And, and, and what I noticed that we moving up from the city to up here upstate New York is that really the lines get blurred with the Republicans and Democrats and really just people just want to work together for the betterment of the town or village, because really we're all friends and we're all neighbors, really. You're going to see somebody in packs. You're going to see somebody dropping off your kid off of school. And I I think that's what I got out of this election was that people were tired of the national rhetoric and wanted to get back to work. Did you feel that way or did you get that sense? No, a hundred percent. And when we were going to door, there's a lot of people that have a lot of strong feelings of what the national rhetoric is. People have big Trump flags and and comments about the election being stolen or or whatever else. But I never saw that as an elimination of an opportunity to to work with somebody. I may not agree with their exact opinion, but I think that our remedies are similar, right? It's that 
people really want new energy. They want to feel represented. They want to feel invited. And, and I don't think that's a democratic or Republican value. I think that everybody wants to be included and everybody wants to feel like they're taken care of and acknowledged and represented. And I think that the previous leadership was so hellbent on, we know what's right. We know the diagnostic of what's going to make things better and don't pay attention. Check out. We don't want you involved. And I don't think that works. And I think that's, I think that's what's got us into the sort of mud of the national story and rhetoric is that, oh, we're career politicians. We'll tell you what time it is. And nobody wants to hear that. I also think that I was really proud to run with a wonderful supervisor of highways. His candidacy was, was really well received as well as I ran with Laura Burrell last time for council person. And then we, we also ran with Rebecca Morbido, who was a fabulous candidate and who still may be in the running. We're one of the races for the second council seat is a little bit in question, but I hope she doesn't give up because she was a fantastic candidate who can advocate for families in a big way. And I think what I noticed about all of us is that we all represented a different opinion. We come from different vocations. We come from different places. Rebecca and Joe are lifelong residents of the town of Highland. Laura came from rural Pennsylvania in a very similar climate. I came from Illinois and, and from New, via New York City and have lived up here for 18 years. We all really reflected a cross segment of the population in town. We were able to team up and give people the option of a new shared vision instead of this sort of piecemeal of more complacency and, and more of the same. Yeah. We have just recently had a boom of folks coming in into this area. A lot of them have gotten into, have gone politically involved uh, because they're caring of what, where they live and what, what's happening in state school boards and what's happening in town boards. So can we talk about that? We, we mentioned one thing in your campaign website about partnering with school districts and the county and other agencies to improve educational opportunities for residents. Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. We've had a business in town for the past, for the past 11 years. And it's given me an interesting purview into the local workforce and the local schools and what's going on at the high school. We've employed a lot of kids that are in high school and a lot of local people in general. And I always ask questions like, what are you hearing at school? What would be helpful for you? How would you want your school to change? And I think that the Eldred School District is moving in a really great direction. It seems like the new superintendent has really breathed new life into our high school and middle school and in elementary school, as it were. But I think that vocational training is really important. I'm experiencing this with my own niece. She was in college for a month and was ready to leave. And I asked her why, and she really wanted to get in, in into the beauty industry and go straight for it. And my sister, being very sensible and logical, was like, well, why don't you get a business degree so you learn how to run your own business and then you can have your own business one day. But I don't think that every kid is wired for that. And I think that vocational training is so important. And we have a very large second homeowner community and vacation community in our neck of the woods. And people that have services and skills to offer like plumbers and HVAC and electricians and, and all those wonderful contractors, those are the future of the economy in our town. And I think that they need somebody to pass the torch to. And, and, and kids need to learn again. I was part of the, the 90s, everybody has to go to college kind of mentality. And I, I don't believe that it paid off. I think it left a lot of kids with mountains of debt in, in liberal arts education which I'm very grateful for and I think prepared me for what I'm doing now. But I don't think that's everybody's story. And I think that vocational training is very important. So I want to support any instance of that in our town. And I also want to work with neighboring communities because I think our rural life in the western side of the county looks a little different than some of the larger towns. We are a sort of river district. And so I really want to focus on that with neighboring communities like Lumberland, 
and Tustin and even up through Bethel now that we're part of our uh, a larger legislative district. But I want to look to see we, where we can incorporate shared services, not only for educational opportunities, but for rebuilding our constable program, maybe increasing our ambulance district and other shared services where we can come together and share and learn from each other and grow together. I think that those are really wonderful opportunities and, and, and hopefully they, hopefully the other legislators and town officials in those towns are, are ready to collaborate because I sure am. I'm excited to explore. You just mentioned about the vocational training. First thing that pops to mind when you said that, I know a person, I believe she's in Jeff. She went to, to, to Sullivan Bolsey's and got her vacation or whatever. I don't know the exact title for it, but for do hair salon. And she has a, a thriving business in Jeff uh, on Main Street there. It's a direct graduate of Sullivan Bolsey's who went to, down that path. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like in our town, we need a pharmacy. It's let's get a kid that's excited about coming back to their hometown and go get their degree as a pharmacist and come back and open a pharmacy. I want to support those things like long range plans where we can empower kids to say, Hey, you can be an active part of your community. Here's where we're lacking things. Here's, here are professions where we need more skilled tradespeople and go get the training. And we have a job waiting for you and, and we want to support you. John, before we go, is there anything else I have not touched on you want folks to know? Yeah, I really just want to keep the door open. I want to, I publish my phone number everywhere with all my campaign things. I, I don't mind somebody dropping me a text and asking me simple questions or more complicated questions. It's, I want to answer to the people. I always want to keep an open door. I don't have this divine agenda. There's nothing specific that I want to accomplish except to make things better, to rebuild our constable program, to build a sustainable ambulance corps, to lower taxes. I know the views are very lofty goals, but I think if we can get everybody to buy in and participate, we'll be in good shape. And and I really feel the sort of wind of change in our town. I think a lot of people want to get involved and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And I hope that folks come out and, and really participate. We're talking to the new town supervisor for the town of Highland, John Pixelato. Thank you so much for joining us on the program and let us know your thoughts um, on the issues. And we look forward to seeing your progress as you make Yeah, can't wait to work with everybody. Thanks again for having me. Well, thank you, Patricio. And that's going to do it for the local edition. The Daily is up next. This is Radio Catskill. Thank you so much.